Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. It's a blessing to be with you today, whether you're in your car or on one of your mobile devices, or even catching the podcast. As I've mentioned, we're devoting February's programs to re-evaluating our pursuits. So today is installment number three. And today, friends, we're going to glean some truths from two Psalms, Psalm 24 and Psalm 15. Psalm 15, by the way, both amplifies Psalm 24 and serves as a built-in commentary that I believe unpacks Psalm 24 for us. It has been rightly said that Scripture is its own best interpreter, and these two Psalms are a good example of this principle. Now, friends, the mental picture that many of us have about the Old Testament is that it is a dry and rule-bound book. Yet, I'm here to tell us that within its pages leaps out a collection of cries from the heart. And one tremendous section of these cries is the Psalms. Our English word comes from the Greek translation of the title in Hebrew, meaning praises. And these praise songs resonate like a musical heartbeat that represents the center of the Bible. Not its chronological center, but its emotional, psychological center. This heartbeat, friends, captures the innermost thoughts and prayers of the Old Testament people, perhaps why they're called prayers in Psalm 72.20. Now, please don't misunderstand me to be suggesting that this relegates them only to the distant past. Today, I hope to challenge us to make the Psalms a part of our daily or weekly lives. My hope is that you'll discover, as I have, that the Psalms articulate your words. The Psalms convey your thoughts. The Psalms pose your hard questions. The Psalms reflect your struggles. The Psalms mimic your moods. And the Psalms express your joys and praise and magnify your God. At first, even I thought, like many of you might be thinking, that the Old Testament God seems distant and impersonal. Yet, the Psalms jolt us to the reality that the presence of God is not just in dusty or crusty declarations. 
Rather, friends, God is revealed as an active, mighty, and loving Lord, one who genuinely makes a difference in our lives. The Psalms amazingly span the gamut of every emotion and mood, from the height of ecstasy to the depth of despair, and reflect the never-changing reality of a mighty and loving God who cares for us. Now, some of us may have the faulty notion that the Psalms are mainly poetic words in song form and have no relevance to our lives today as New Testament Christians. But this poetry alerts us to some disquieting truths. First, those who love God are not necessarily exempt from feeling abandoned, misused, even betrayed. And second, closeness to God is not always a guarantee of safety, but sometimes is only a guarantee of God's closeness. And friends, while praise does saturate these prayers, they arise not from the absence of problems, but from the deepest conviction that one who trusts in a great God will ultimately be an overcomer. And while these poems of praise and worship are some of the most powerful and beautiful ever written, they offer no magical formula to make our troubles go away. As they lead me to see them, the Psalms portray the deepest level of intimacy possible between us and God. And in this intimate relationship, God speaks through his people. And through his people, friends, he reveals to us his deepest wishes and what it actually means to live a holy life, one that pleases him. Our focus today will be the midsection of Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who can possibly ascend the mountain of the eternal? Who can stand before him in sacred spaces? Only those whose hands have been washed and hearts made pure. Men and women who are not given to lies or deception... The Eternal will stand close to them with blessing and mercy at hand, and the God who redeems will right what has been wrong. These are the people who chase after him. Like Jacob, they look for the face of God. Now, the entire psalm naturally divides into three sections. Verses 1 and 2, the superiority of God. In other words, he is creator. Verses 3 through 6, the sanctity of God. In other words, he is holy. And verses 7 through 10, the sovereignty of God. In other words, he is king. A brief summary of the first section is fitting. The material world is God's by right of creation. He created everything. He owns everything. Therefore, he is superior. We humans were created in his image, and we are responsible and accountable to him. We possess and own only what God entrusts to us. We only have a secondary title, a delegated authority to use and enjoy responsibly what God has given us. 
As caretakers of his creation, we are called to assure justice, care for our families, and meet others' needs. Interestingly, friends, when the people of Israel gathered for worship, a common and recurring ingredient was acknowledging in songs and prayers God's ownership of all they had and were. And you know what? This understanding was not lost by the New Testament church. In fact, the book of Acts records a prayer by Peter and John that underscores their conviction of God being creator and owner of everything. Read Acts 4:23 and 24. Verse 24 is virtually a quote from Psalm 146:6. Here they prefaced their prayer, acknowledging the ownership of God over his created universe. Personally, friends, I think we've lost this sense today. I think we should work at recovering this aspect of worship. It would certainly counteract the rampant materialism, greed, and selfishness that sadly still plague segments of the body of Christ. I'll never forget an experience I had when we were living back east. I was out driving, listening to a Christian radio station. I was suddenly surprised by a commercial in the guise of a call to virtuous women. It was actually a Christian beauty pageant. They didn't use those words, but it became obvious that they were get what they were getting at. It turned out to be a beauty pageant that didn't focus on outward beauty. So I listened with a somewhat skeptical ear, thinking, okay, I can handle this so far, calling virtuous women and all. The stipulations were you had to be over 21, a mother, and involved in Christian service of some kind. Again, I thought, okay, this is not too bad. But then they announced the prizes, a fur coat, a gold ring, a cruise. I was so upset. I thought to myself, is this what our Christian goals have been reduced to? Friends, we're so easily sucked into and caught up in this world's perspective rather than that world's perspective. A quick Bible lesson on what we should be focusing in on is Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, the midsection of Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, today's focus calls attention to the holiness of God. It reminds us of our true goal, where our minds and our focus should really be. Notice the two questions David asks. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? This is likely the temple which was perched on a hill or a mount. Now David answers these two questions forthrightly. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swears by what is false. Now this verse, friends, becomes our bridge to Psalm 15, which asks the same questions, but provides an expanded answer. In verses 2 through 5, we find this expansion. 
the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises the ways of the vile, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever lives like this will never be shaken. So, friends, in February, I'm challenging us to re-examine our pursuits. Today, I ask, are we people who pursue purity? That's our word for today. Psalm 24 answers the questions, who may ascend to God's mountain and who may stand in his holy place with the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now the expression clean hands and a pure heart crops up several times in scripture. It appears to be a trademark of David. It also appears in slightly modified forms in Psalms 18 and 73. Friends, I think David uses this phrase to characterize in a nutshell the entire life of a God follower. Outside David's writings, there's Job, who refers to the clean hands of a righteous person in Job 17.9. The Apostle Paul mentions lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing in 1 Timothy 2.8. In other words, outwardly demonstrating our inner attitudes, if you will. James, in James 4.8, admonishes believers with, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this expression in both Old and New Testaments, I believe, represents the dual dimension of our life as Christ followers. Clean hands is often a metaphor to symbolize our overall outward life manifested by our deeds. Pure heart, I believe, refers to our overall inward life. In other words, the secret chamber of our being that only God inspects and examines. And there is a direct relationship between the clean hands and the pure heart. Friends, the quality and purity of my inward life, my heart, if you will, is reflected in or expressed by my outward behavior towards others. So, in a sense, we could say that the pure heart stands for what a person is, and the clean hands stand for what a person does. I think that Jesus captured this idea beautifully during his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. At one point, their dialogue culminated in Jesus' now famous words, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 24. I proposed here that Jesus alludes to this dual dimension of the believer's life. In other words, spirit here refers to the inner dimension and truth to the outer dimension. 
I contend that we can only know someone is living in truth by how they act it out. Here, friends, I think it's fitting to summarize the third division of Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. These four verses declare the sovereignty of God. In other words, his role as king or sovereign ruler. I'd like to propose that this final segment functions like an invitation. The gates and doors symbolize opening up and letting the king in, letting him in as sovereign ruler and lord. Verse 9 beckons us, Lift up your hands, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This brought to mind Revelation 3.20 and Jesus' own invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. By the way, this was said to believers. Well, friends, let's recap the questions asked in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer comes back immediately. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Perhaps you recall an older worship chorus called Holy Ground with the opening lyrics, We are standing on holy ground. Perhaps, friends, a few sobering questions we ought to be asking ourselves are, are those merely words on paper or a screen? Do we shudder at the prospect that the condition of our hands and heart before God may not be pleasing to him? Are we lifting up holy hands in our worship times? The prophet Isaiah, when he was ushered into the presence of a holy God, immediately became aware of his uncleanness in Isaiah 6. He readily confessed, Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter, when first called as a disciple, witnessing the power of Jesus filling his nets with fish, fell down at Jesus' feet and confessed, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, 8. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, after seeing the glorified and glorious Jesus, fell on his face like a dead man. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you if you were in the presence of incarnate holiness? Friends, it would sure seem to me that we should be coming into our worship centers in church more often with this posture from Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any hurtful or wicked or offensive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.29 admonishes us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that this verse is sandwiched in between two statements that both speak of our tongues or our language being unwholesome? Friends, shouldn't we desire to know if our hands and our hearts are breaking the heart of God by either our inner disposition or our outer deeds? 
shouldn't the notion of standing in his presence on holy ground act like a searchlight probing the very depths of our hearts and lives? Well, friends, the rubber really meets the road when we see how Psalm 15 amplifies the answer to the two questions and thereby helps define and expand the phrase, clean hands and a pure heart. I encourage you to read both Psalm 24 and 15 in our In One Sitting. They're both short and remind us that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, as someone once said. Psalm 15 duplicates the two questions this way. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? When we see Psalm 15's answer in verses 2 through 5, it would be so easy to view these verses as spelling out a mandate responsibility. But shame on us if we see them that way. Instead, verses 2 through 5 are outlining for us a voluntary access to God's presence. You see, friends, as God followers, we have an open invitation from God to visit with him as often as we wish, in our hearts, in our spirits. Verses 1, may, who may dwell in your sacred tent, Lord, speaks of dwelling in the sense of being at home with. The paradox here is that we are both the family of God and guests of God, and we've been given a personal invitation into God's presence. A rough paraphrase of the Hebrew of these opening questions may be, Who may be your guest, Lord? And the answer comes back in Psalm 15 with the opening, He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from his heart. I like to refer to these three phrases as the walk, the work, and the witness of the godly person whose walk is blameless. This is our walk in the Lord, our habits of life, our lifestyle. We're not expected to be flawless, but blameless. In other words, truthful, with integrity in our inner and outer being. Who does what is righteous, or what's right in God's eyes? The does here is a reference to our works. In other words, our outer behaviors and deeds, including the work of our hands. Who speaks truth from the heart? In other words, our inner disposition and attitudes we hold that manifest themselves in honest and truthful speech. This becomes our witness in and to the world. Friends, the syndrome in the church today, that's S-I-N-DROME, is that we so easily do or live out the opposite of Psalm 15, 2 through 5, four short but intensely powerful and instructive verses from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. The answers supplied for us in these two Psalms are just as valid today as they were when they were first asked and answered by David. Friends, as Christ followers, is one of our pursuits the pursuit of purity? Well, friends, we've come to the end of today's program. I hope it's been both challenging and edifying, and it would be my honor to be praying for you 
as we all are spurred on by God's word to love and good deeds and the pursuit of purity. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. This email is also where you may contact me to learn how you can financially help this listener-supported program. It's listeners like you that keep this program on the air. In fact, friends, two listeners recently wrote in with responses that I'd love to share with you. One listener in Phoenix wrote, I just want you to know that I'm really enjoying your radio show. Good work, my friend. Another listener from the Sun City area wrote, Thanks for sending me the email links. You are doing a wonderful job of delivering God's word. Keep up the great work. Well, my response is a big thank you. And praise and credit go to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, please consider and pray about coming alongside a word from the word with your financial support, either with one-time giving or monthly giving. Thank you again for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.